Hi there, and welcome to the podcast, Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Within modern day 21st century, some might flippantly say that the importance of organized religion has reached a low point as far as reach, role, and sway within daily life for many around the world. Stating an intention or belief in the possibility of carving out a successful career built on studying, writing, or producing works on the matter may also raise eyelids or provoke some hefty skepticism. However, such musings would be wholly short-sighted. Take the U.S., in which 7 out of 10 Americans identify as Christian. According to an estimation in 2020, globally, Islam has 1.9 billion adherents, making up about 24.7% of the world population. Add in that much of contemporary societal customs, norms, and laws from around the world are easily traced back to religious influence. Sure, things may be changing, and perhaps youth in some pockets and countries are shifting away from religion. But make no mistake, these movements are in no way going to eradicate the influence or importance of organized religion in all its various forms from human existence anytime soon. To add, if you believe in the simple yet profound truism about predicting the future being an exercise in discerning our past, then you'd also be forced to acknowledge the criticality of understanding the role of religion. On today's show, we have an exceptional guest who is not only eminently qualified to speak on matters of organized religion based on his own experiences and study of it all, but also from his extraordinary record of professional achievement and success attached to it all. Reza Aslan is a leading expert in world religions. He's also an internationally renowned writer, professor, and an Emmy and Peabody-nominated producer. His books, including his number one New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, with over a million copies sold, have been translated into dozens of languages around the world. His latest book, An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville, will be out this October. His producing credits include the acclaimed HBO series, The Leftovers, and the CBS comedy, United States of AI. Aslan is also the host and executive producer of two other original television programs, Rough Draft with Reza Aslan on Topic and CNN's documentary series, Believer. He served as an executive producer on the ABC drama of Kings and Prophets and on the Emmy-nominated documentary series, The Secret Life of Muslims. In 2006, Aslan co-founded Boom Gen Studios, the premier entertainment brand for creative content from and about the Middle East, which has provided an array of targeted services ranging from strategic messaging to grassroots marketing to publicity and social media outreach to producers, studios, and filmmakers. Aslan's first book, international seller, No God But God, The Origins, Evolution, and Future of Islam, has been translated into 17 languages and was named one of the 100 most important books of the last decade by Blackwell Publishers. Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus Nazareth, has been translated into 27 languages worldwide and is soon to be a major motion picture with a script co-written by Aslan and Oscar screenwriter James Chalmers. Aslan's degrees include a Bachelor of Arts in Religious Studies from Santa Clara University, a Master of Theological Studies from Harvard University, a PhD of Sociology of Religions from the University of California, Santa Barbara, 
and a Master of Fine Arts from the University of Iowa, where he was named the Truman Capote Fellow in Fiction. Aslan is a tenured professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside, and serves on the Board of Trustees for the Chicago Theological Seminary and the Yale Humanist Community. Finally, Reza is co-host of the popular podcast, Metaphysical Milkshake, which he co-hosts with actor and producer, Rain Wilson. Born in Iran, he lives in Los Angeles with his wife, author, and entrepreneur, Jessica Jackley, and their four children. So with all that stated, and hopefully much, much more to come, it's a true honor to welcome you to the program, Reza. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. You'll have to forgive me. My my voice is a little hoarse because I... Uh... I went to a football game over the weekend and screamed my head off in a in a completely losing endeavor, but still yeah. had a lot of fun. And now I have no voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll, we'll power through this somehow, some way. I mean, that is quite the list of accomplishments. So just really quickly returning to that, geez. I mean, you're like a human highlight reel there with all. You that know, stuff. I have I have that uh, I have that immigrant syndrome. You know, where I feel like if I don't have at least five or six jobs at any one time, then I am a failure. Well, I don't think you have to worry about that. Also, four that. kids, you know, four well, kids. There you go. You gotta, that's uh, yeah. A lot of mouths to feed. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Well, again, like I said, I'm excited to get into this. So, why don't we? Um, I got this first segment here. It's called Coloring Wikipedia. As my listeners would know, it's a segment where I just read off a definition of the guest profession. I like to do it for a few reasons. One, it brings everybody up to speed just on what the person actually does. And then, two, <laughs> I find it interesting in the sense that. You know, I might hold a position title, you might hold the exact same position title, yet we put our own stamp on it, you know, we kind of own it in different ways. And I think that kind of allows us to kind of launch into a discussion on the actual job in, in an interesting manner. So a couple of reasons right there. And then sometimes just flat out Wikipedia is off base or other times <laughs> yeah. it is on. So yeah, we can have some fun with it. So I do have you down here for scholar. I went with that one. It was tough. It was tough because there's so much on your plate here, but I went with that one as a jumping off point. I hope that's okay. So let me just read that off for you and then I'll let you uh, comment. Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. Scholar. A scholar is a person who pursues academic and intellectual activities, particularly academics who apply their intellectualism and new expertise in an area of study. A scholar can also be an academic who works as a professor, teacher, or researcher at a university. An academic usually holds an advanced degree or a terminal degree, such as a master's degree or a doctorate, PhD. Independent scholars, such as philosophers and public intellectuals, work outside of the academy, yet publish in academic journals and participate in scholarly public discussion. Bit of a mouthful. There it is. <laughs> um, but what do you think, you know, first off? What's your impression of that? I mean, it's certainly uh, what I kind of imagined a scholar was when I got into this business. I, it's funny because like, if I really think about it, all I ever really wanted to be was a writer. I mean, that's I don't remember a time in which I wanted to be anything else but a writer. But again, going back to, you know, the whole immigrant thing. I mean, I remember very clearly when I was in high school and I told my immigrant mom that I wanted to be a writer. She said, who's stopping you from writing? You just go be a doctor and you can write whenever you want to. And I was like, no, no, mom, I, I want to be a writer as a job. Like, I want that to be my career. And she, and she said, that's not a real thing. And, <laughs> and so I remember thinking to myself, well, okay, well, I like school and I'm good at it. Um, yeah. I'll just keep going and I'll, I'll become 
a scholar and and an academic. Uh, at least this way, my mom can tell people, you know, that her son is a doctor, even though it's like the fake doctor. <laughs> Took care of that side, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's all that really is important. It's just my mom being able to say, <laughs> "My son, doctor." That's right. Um, and I have to say, it was a, a real kind of wake up call. There's a lot of criticism about American academia, and a, yeah. most of it is very, very well deserved. And I think that part of the problem is that it's become so cloistered and exclusive. You know, we have this kind of rarefied secret language that we use with each other that nobody else really understands. And, mm. and there is such a strong discouragement. Discouragement isn't even the, the right word for it. I, yeah. There's punishment for academics who go beyond the ivory tower and try to speak to a, a public audience, a popular audience, and try to present their research in, right. in a way that's accessible and entertaining. And I discovered that very, very quickly. My first book came out before I had finished my PhD, before I had actually finished my exams. Okay. My first book came out and it was like this big, huge international bestseller. And like an idiot, I just assumed that my... <laughs> university in my department would be happy about that. Right, that right, would, right. Would love to support know, something like exactly, that. Exactly. They would support. It. They would be like, look at, look at us. One of our students is having this incredible success. That speaks volumes about our program. And what I discovered was the exact opposite, that it actually uh, made my my life that much more difficult. And so very early on, I, I decided that I wanted to be not just a scholar. I wanted to be a public intellectual. I wanted to be somebody who talks about big ideas in a way that is interesting and accessible to people outside of academia. And I've gotten a lot of crap for it. I mean, the second you started saying you were going to read my Wikipedia page, I thought, oh, my God, this is not going to go well. <laughs> I, I'm I, I'm certainly I think the only scholar of religions whose Wikipedia page had to be locked for like months at a time because it was being attacked. Um, but that's kind of the role that I've I've chosen for myself. You know, I find this stuff incredibly interesting. I find it so fascinating. And the assumption that I made very early on was. If I find it interesting, I bet other people would yeah, find it interesting too. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, just got to figure out a way to kind of serve it up to them in a way that that is easy to understand. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally it. And that's what I, I found really compelling when I started you know, digging into your background uh, a little bit more and, and, you know, a little more deeply is, is this base, you know, being a scholar, but then all the other things that you have been doing, which I guess in that vein has been your, your goal of like you just said, making it accessible, you know, putting yeah. out these books, putting out these works, uh, your work in, in arts and entertainment within Hollywood itself, you know, film and, and entertainment in that realm too. And uh, yeah, quite honestly, I was, I was conflicted. I'm like, where do I go with this? What, what do I choose? Do I, do I go scholar? Do I go writer, you know, bestseller, you know, where do I go with this? But I ultimately went back to uh, to a scholar because I think that's where it all started. Maybe you, know, you would agree with that as well. Yeah. I think a lot of your work has been born out of a lot of those things. And yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think it clears it up right now, you know, in terms of that being the base and, and using all these other mediums as that platform to get your word out there and allow exactly. others to enjoy it and discover it. So, yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, when you're talking about religion, I, I, it's such a hot topic and, and people sure get is. so um, defensive uh, about it. But I think that 
you have to understand that religion is not just a matter of beliefs and practices. Religion is a matter of identity. Religion is how you define yourself. It's one of the major markers of your identity, the things that make you who you are, along with your race, your ethnicity, your gender, your sexual orientation, nationality, you know, all of those things. And I think that when you start thinking about religion in those terms, as not a set of beliefs and practices, but as a form of identity, then you understand very quickly how it permeates every aspect of life. You know, people say, well, what is a scholar of religion doing talking about politics? I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, exactly, right? you know, religion and politics are go hand in hand for better or worse. Right? Yeah. They go yeah. hand in hand. What is, you know, why, why am I doing, you know, why am I writing stories or, or working in film and television? You know, especially nowadays, so much of the good stuff on TV deals with the multiplicity of ways that we identify ourselves and think about ourselves and navigate, you know, through this craziness of a world in search of meaning. Well, those are all issues that we deal with in the study of religion. And to be able to sort of put together a show like The Leftovers, which you mentioned, which, you know, is kind of a, a sci-fi show, but which deals very seriously with the, the desperate search for existential meaning at a time in which everything around you seems to have completely crumbled. Well, yeah. that's my gig, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I could write a book about that or I could make a TV show about it, or I could do both. It just, it just a different audience, but it's the same stuff. It's the same yeah. thing. Yeah. I, like I said, I think that's what makes your career and what you've been doing just that, you know, that, that compelling, quite frankly, for lack of a better word is just that there's very few people that are doing it. You know, and most of them are staying within those Ivy towers and, you know, <laughs> paper after paper after paper, which is great. I mean, there's a lot of great research coming out of there, but in terms of accessibility, dozens of people reading those papers. Just so. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> it. Right. That's exactly it. So yeah, uh, I think we're gonna have an interesting talk today. I'm enjoying it so far, but I would like to, to skip on over and do a new segment here if you don't mind, Reza. Yeah. And uh, this one, it's called the Q&A Discovery. We can just kind of continue this back and forth. But this first one lined up, I did dig in and did a, a bit of research on you, uh, of course. And this one is a story that I, I, I caught on your podcast, Metaphysical Milkshake. Uh -oh. And it, it hit me for a few different reasons. One, it was on the topic of a religion. So obviously it's, it's pertinent to this, uh -huh. this talk today. But then also something that you said, I'm just going to look at this here. It's uh, this, this formative experience, which according to you, ultimately foreshadowed and became the foundation of your life's work in the way you think and talk about religion. Okay, so this, this experience. And for listeners, and maybe for you too, I've got some bullet points just to jog your memory and to kind of put this together. And I might add that these bullet Very points seemingly okay. have no place. <laughs> they, they should not be together in any way, shape, or form. But somehow they all come together. So let me read these bullet points out for you, and then I'll let you take it from there. So here we go. Star Trek. A one-man performative show. Dharmic, Abrahamic, Nagaraja. A world mythology course. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Take it away, Reza. That's, Take it away. Yeah. Let's hear it. and Jalada Tanagra. Hey, look, uh, I I am unapologetically a trucker. Okay. I am yeah. unapologetically a trucker. I feel like like so much of life's questions <laughs> has been answered, you know, over many, many decades of, of the genius that is uh Star Trek. And uh 
It is a funny story. That's true. So when I went it to, I, I, was, I was an undergrad. So one thing, what we need to back up a little bit because okay. we've talked about me being a scholar of religions, but we haven't talked about the problem with my academic field, which is that it has no definition, which is, it's crazy to think about that, that there is literally no universally accepted definition of the term religion. You know, you have all these scholars who spend their entire lives studying it, but none of us can say with any confidence what it actually is. You know, mm. we're all very good at talking about what it isn't. Yeah. Religion isn't belief in gods and goddesses. I mean, that's very obvious. There are countless gigantic world religions that don't believe in gods or right. or goddesses like Theravada Buddhism, obviously Jainism, Taoism. It's not participation in rituals because there are secular rituals that are just as ceremonial and just as ritualistic. You know, I mean, I just like I said, I just came from a from a NFL football game and that felt like a religion. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. 100%. Holy cow. Yeah, that was definitely religious in, in a lot of ways. We don't know. We don't know what religion is. And. One of the major challenges of anyone going into the field of world religions or religious studies is coming up with a working definition of it, you know, something yeah. that that you that you can now use to then sort of do all the work that you need to do. And it's true. When I, was, I think I was, must have been a sophomore in college, I think so, like a year into my study of religion. Yeah. Um, I did a presentation uh, for my uh, world religions class, and I used this episode of Star Trek, where if you're a Star Trek fan, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Darmok, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it sounds bizarre. I, but essentially, to, to, to give it the shortest version of this episode, yeah. the, uh, the Enterprise comes across an alien race that speaks only in metaphor. So while they can understand the words that they are saying, because the universal translator translates it, they don't understand what the words actually mean, you yeah. know? So like the guy's like, hey, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. And you're like, okay, I, I heard all those words, but I don't know what, what you're talking yeah. about. And ultimately what they, what they discover is that, oh, they are speaking in mythological terms or I should say in metaphorical terms, about uh, mythological parts of their culture. Mm. So it would be the equivalent of me saying George Washington cutting down the cherry tree. And every American goes, well, yeah, I know what that means. So yeah. what you mean is, uh, you know, tell the truth. That's what you mean. Like you're just yeah. saying, tell right. the truth. If I'm saying like, be like George Washington cutting down the cherry tree. But if you don't know who George Washington is, and you yeah. don't know what the cherry tree is, <laughs> then it doesn't matter if you understand my words, you have no idea what I'm talking about. And I remember having this sudden, just absolute epiphany, realizing, oh my God, that's religion. That's what religion is. Religion isn't a set of beliefs and practices. It isn't belief in this or that. It is the language that you use, a language made up of symbols and metaphors to help express what is fundamentally inexpressible, you know, these sort of transcendent nebulous ideas of, of faith and identity and your place in the world, et cetera, et cetera. So for instance, if I say I've been washed by the blood of the lamb, well, if you're 
a certain kind of Christian, you know exactly what I just said. You, I mean, I communicated something profound to you. We spoke. We communicated. But if you're not a Christian, even if you understand those words, you're like, what? Washed by the blood? What kind of a psycho are you talking about here? Um, and there it is. There it is. And so I made it my goal in life to become a kind of universal translator, yeah. if you will, to use the Star Trek term, to yeah. familiarize myself with all the metaphors, yeah. you know, with all the symbolic language, and then to spend my life explaining to people what someone meant yeah. by, I've been washed in the blood of the lamb, <laughs> you know? And that's kind of, yeah, my career started right there with uh, with a, a classic Star Trek episode, which Thanks. everyone, by the way, <laughs> come on, people. If you're listening to this podcast and you're like, what is Reza talking about? Stop what you're doing and go watch Darmok. Well, fin- finish listening to the episode and then, yes. Finish, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, I, I apologize. <laughs> finish, the, finish the podcast episode, then go and see Darmok. Then go in. Yeah, yeah. Genius. So I love that. You know, like, I I strategically put that in right off the top there because i love that how that accessibility it returns to what we were just chatting about you know you you making things accessible and putting out in such a way that people can digest it can make sense of it yeah. can connect with it within their own lives you know and i think that religion is this big clouded sort of like concept or construct for people and it just it's <laughs> overwhelming quite frankly and people i think at times will just like they, they tune out the moment they heard the word religion or they hear someone preaching about something it's instantly you know the shutters go down and nope 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 but uh yeah you, you find some creative outlets you find some different ways of, of putting that you know that content out in front of people and suddenly there's a lot to be learned there obviously yeah. you know there's a lot to be learned you know, returning to a point earlier, you know, like a lot of uh, societal customs, norms, all these things. I think I've mentioned this off the top. It's all connected to religion. So if you want to understand our future, again, returning to that point as well, we, we got to understand the past. We have to understand how people think. It makes sense of this, this wild and crazy world that we're living in. So it all sort of connects in these different ways. And uh, yeah, just- yeah, it's really fascinating. You, you were given some very interesting statistics earlier on about sort of the number of, you know, the percentage of Christians in America, percentage of people who are associated with yeah. one religion or another. We have right now, I think about 2.5% of the population that self-identifies as atheists. But even among those atheists, there's been a lot of work done to kind of recognize exactly what is meant by atheism. And among those atheists, a lot of atheism is in and of itself presented as a kind of belief system, you know, a set of postulates about the workings of the universe based on best guesses, you know? And and I think, you know, people read these headlines a lot. There was a very interesting headline very recently about from the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life saying that that Christianity is starting to diminish in the in the United States and may by the year 2070 be less than half the population. That's pretty pretty profound statistic in such a profoundly Christian country as ours. But again, I think lost in all of those statistics is the idea that religion and faith still plays a major role in the way that people understand their place in the world. And yes, fewer people are becoming Christians, but they're not becoming atheists, right? They're changing religions. The fastest growing religious denomination in the United States is the so-called nons or the non-affiliated. These are people who refuse to associate themselves with any particular religious tradition, but also refuse to call themselves atheists. Very Mm -hmm. openly say, 
you know, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And I borrow a little bit from this and I borrow a little bit from that. And there's now in a very interesting way, my, my previous book, God, a human history was all about this, this issue. There's now this really fascinating cognitive work that's being done. The more we learn about the brain and the, and how the brain functions, the more we're starting to understand that whatever the religious impulse is, whatever this idea of faith, this nebulous notion of faith is, that it is a a part of our cognitive processes. It's actually how our brains function and work, although we don't know why yet. Mm. That's the real fascinating aspect of it. We know that, however you want to refer to it, religion, the religious impulse, faith, whatever, transcendence, you know, there's a lot of fancy words for it, but we all know kind of what we're talking about, that we're born with that idea, that it is part of our evolution, that Mm. we have now ample archaeological material evidence to show the same kinds of beliefs in previous forms of humans, including Neanderthals, and possibly going all the way back even to Cro-Magnon, though the as you can imagine, the material evidence is a little bit more sketchy when you're starting when you're talking 500,000 years ago. Uh, but nevertheless, what we know with a fair measure of confidence is that we're all born somehow, for some reason, with this capacity towards religious belief, religious thought. And I think that whether we understand why that is or whether we find that to be of any value or not, I think that simply ignoring it and pretending that it's just kind of the product of a diseased mind or something that you grow out of, or eventually we'll all become rich enough and scientifically advanced enough where it'll go away. Well, at a certain point, we have to stop saying stuff like that, okay? It's been thousands and thousands of years, yeah. and religion is as strong a force in the world today as it was, you know, 100 years ago, and there's no reason to think that it won't be. It'll change. Well, that's religion it. is in a, it's, yeah it's that it changes it just redefines itself based exactly. on different societal norms and what's going on and, and just the world around us it just morphs into a different form that is reflective of some of the values that are you know taking shape with in fact one of the things that i find most fascinating and i've only recently started kind of talking and writing about this but what i find really interesting is far from religion and science continuing to diverge what what I've been noticing, I'm not the only person, a lot of people have been writing about this, but the more science begins to delve deeply into the nature of reality, the more it starts to sound like religion, the more it starts to use the, the kind of language and terminology that used to be the purview of religion. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we are moving towards a future in which science and religion, far from diverging, sort of converge into a single thing, into a single idea. But one thing that I can say with a a fair measure of confidence, looking back over thousands of years, is that however you feel about religion, it's here for good. And you know, you gotta, you gotta be familiar with it. You gotta understand it. And that's kind of what I see my role as being. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. Really, really fascinating. I could just continue on this discussion, quite frankly, (laughs) and ignore all the questions I've got lined up here for you. But I do want to get over into your latest book, which again is coming out in October, uh, An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. 
And I'd like to kind of start this discussion with a quote that I found from your Twitter account of all places. That's what you <laughs> do these days, right? Is how you start these uh, these things off your research. Let me just read that out for you. And sure. uh, I've got another quote and I'll uh, ask you to comment from there. So here it goes. It's a story about a pious young man who confronted with an intolerable situation is activated to do something about it, to actually put his beliefs into practice. And that's the kind of story that really animates me. Now, I do have one more quote here from Publishers Weekly from you about this. And you said, my goal is that every American remember the name Howard Baskerville. Now, clearly, this tale mm -hmm. of this American Christian missionary, you know, off in Iran, doing his thing over there, it's entered your consciousness and it's resonated yeah. with you, obviously, to write a book on this. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Like, how did this come about first off? And, and what, what struck you about the story and inspired you to, to write about it? You know, it's funny because I've always known the name Howard Baskerville. If you're an Iranian of a particular generation, my generation is probably like the last generation that like grew okay. up knowing, knowing who this kid was. He was just a familiar name. You know, he was sometimes referred to as the Lafayette of Iran, this foreigner who fought in Iran's revolution. He was a 22-year-old Christian missionary who in 1907 went to, born in Nebraska, you know, was living in South Dakota and applied to become a missionary, desperately wanted to go to China or Japan. And to his dismay, got uh, a position in Persia, uh, what was, you know, what is now called Iran, did not want to go there, did not want, the last thing he wanted to do was to go to a Muslim country and to try to convert, you know, what he referred to as Mohammedans uh, to, to Christianity. But, you know, that's, you do what, you go where the Lord calls you. And so he went and he, by chance, ended up arriving in the middle of the first democratic revolution in the Middle East. Uh, it's uh, referred to, history refers to it as the constitutional revolution of 1906. And this was a, a revolution that resulted in a constitution and a parliament and a transformed almost overnight Iran's 2000 year old monarchy into a constitutional monarchy with rights and privileges for all peoples, regardless of their social status or their or their religion. Unfortunately, the the Shah that the Shah or King who had signed that constitution died three days later, and his son, this kind of absolutely treacherous, almost comically villainous character uh, by the name of Muhammad Ali, not that Muhammad Ali, uh, became the new Shah and tore up the constitution, rolled cannons to the parliament building and destroyed the building with the parliamentarians still inside and basically launched what became a, a civil war between the revolutionaries and, and the state, which was backed by Russia and Britain. And Howard Baskerville, this 22-year-old missionary who was there to preach the gospel and teach English at a missionary school in, in this kind of small town called Tabriz in the northwest of the country, got caught up in this. He was told repeatedly that it wasn't his business. This was not his fight. The church told him he's there to save souls, not lives. The American government said this thing has no business surviving. There's no, literally the Taft administration said there's no such thing as Muslim democracy. That's stupid. And so this thing won't survive. And so there's no way we can support this. And so any attempt by you to join the revolution would be considered, and they use the word, treason. 
Uh, and so facing treason, facing, you know, the the sort of damnation of his church, mm-hmm. this young man did precisely what I was saying before. He put his values into action. He put his faith into action. He said, in the name of my Christianity, in the name of my American identity, I'm going to give up my citizenship. I'm going to give up my missionary post. And I'm going to go and defend these people who are being slaughtered because they asked for the most basic say in the in the decisions that rule their lives. The most basic thing that I take for granted as a Christian and as an American, these people are dying for it. And I'm going to go and die with them. And sure enough, he does. And he becomes this incredibly heroic martyr figure. But in, a, in many ways, going back to our earlier conversation, you know, when I say these are the kinds of stories that animate me, in many ways, Baskerville's story for a lot of people encapsulates what they hate about religion and religious people. You know, like right now, Christianity has deservedly so a very bad rap in the United States because many Americans see it as a bunch of right wing you know, insurrectionists who want to build a Christian nation and who are forcing their skewed, you know, ideas of morality upon the rest of the country, you know, through what is fundamentally minority rule, you know, and and who have done so by marrying themselves to this, like, absolutely appalling, the least Christian person you could possibly imagine, and doing it, you know, for base rank power. And you look at it, you look at this kid who, again, I want to make it clear in the name of Christianity, in the name of Christ, sacrificed himself so that other people could be free. I think a lot of people think, like, isn't that what it's supposed to be like? Right. You know, even atheists, even people who hate religion are like, isn't that what it's supposed to be, at least? Yeah. Yeah. I just had this, this, sorry to interrupt you. I just had this thought popped in my mind of, you know, Christianity. At least within America, here's an example here, but but elsewhere as well. You know, some of the the, the proverbs there, love thy neighbor. And I just have this imagery of just just give me a hand while I build this wall to keep out the, that that exactly. rock out of the. You know what I mean? Like it's that, right? It's that. That's how it manifests itself. It's, yeah. it's right there. So yeah, deservedly so. I mean, you can see why religion is taking a beating, and at least Christianity in that sense. But I mean, you're claiming to follow an impoverished brown man who advocated free health care for all people. Like, don't, don't, you know, don't pretend to follow that guy and then tell me, you know, about your politics. It's just, so that's, that's always been a very fascinating thing. I mean, I, I'm a, I consider myself a deeply spiritual person. And to me, like the marker of a spiritual person is, are you willing to actually put your beliefs into practice? Because if you're not willing to put your beliefs into practice, then it's not really beliefs. And that's exactly what Howard Baskerville represents. And I think that's why I want at this time to kind of resurrect this kid's name who's been completely lost to history. Yeah. 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 I, like after reading that book, I was blown away. I mean, it, it seems like a story has all the elements there of someone who should be celebrated, who should be, you know, up on a pedestal and should be on the names of, of every American for that matter, internationally as well. So thanks for sharing that. And, and, and to add to that, here's the second question that kind of connects up really nicely is that a lot of his efforts and, and what was going on there in this, you know, this constitutional revolution, I guess, if you will, 
is that there was a lot of lasting effects and change that came about from that. And certainly Baskerville played a role in a lot of this. You know, if you look at modern day Iran, there's certain societal and cultural elements that, uh, that bleed into all of this, which, which is quite fascinating too. And maybe yeah. you know, another question you could speak to those. those no, I mean, honestly, like that was sort of the hardest thing to write about this particular era in Iranian history, because we know what Iran is today. Yeah. And so you write about this moment in which this, you know, through the blood and sacrifice of so many people from so many places around the world, including this one American, that Iran got this incredibly enlightened constitution, this parliament with free elections, you know, this this moment of progress and liberalism that had the ability to put Iran at the forefront of the modern nations of the world at the very start of the 20th century. And then because of circumstances that were completely outside of its control, everything fell apart. And those circumstances were the the launch of the First World War. The First World War essentially turned Iran into a a staging ground for that that conflict. The Russians and the British carved up the country into two. The Russians took the north, the British took the south. Immediately after the war, the Spanish flu killed millions of Iranians, and then that was followed by famine, by economic hardship, and then fundamentally that allowed for a military dictatorship to arise and all of that, all of the work and the sacrifice of so many people, including Howard Baskerville, gave way to yet another expression of dictatorship and autocracy, which then lasted from, you know, 1920 something, 1924 to 1979, where there was another revolution and people thought, here we go, it's going to happen again this time. And then once again, as a result of some things beyond Iran's control, but also, you know, things that were happening in Iran itself, that revolution descended into religious autocracy. So, you know, for Iran watchers and certainly for Iranians like me, it's hard not to look at the 20th century of Iran with heartbreak of like Mm. what could have been. And so this book is a lot about what could have been. But fundamentally, you know, it's also a reminder that the impact of a single individual who is doing nothing more than living out their beliefs can have global ripples. And sometimes it doesn't work out, but nevertheless, the idea that you're still willing to put everything out there for the greater good is, I think, a notion that has been lost. You know, we've become over the last few years because of, you know, the Trump years and the pandemic and, you know, everything else that's going on around the world. We've become very isolated. We've become very contained. Young people aren't really thinking in global terms like they used to. We're not all that fond of democracy in America, let alone, you know, going out there and helping other people achieve, you know, their their freedoms. And so more than anything, I'm I'm hoping that the resurrection of this of this kid's name, Howard Baskerville, will be a reminder that values are only values if you live them out. Otherwise, they're not really anything at all. You know, well said, well said. And this is playing right into the next question I have lined up here well like some of the the i guess patterns and connections between some of these events you're just speaking of within this persian revolution being as you said kind of reflective you know to a certain extent of the present day that we're experiencing right now 
And uh, what came to mind when I was reading this book is that the use of religion as this tool for one political gain or persuasion, influence. And I've got I've got this again, this imagery of a certain past U.S. president, you know, walking out the White House, standing in front of a fence, just grabbing this book and holding it up, you know, for (laughs) for a few shots and then just probably tossing it off to the side in the, yeah. in the garbage or something like that. But, you know, mm-hmm. I have imagery of, of, of that, but you know, that person held up this book for this specific reason, get those shots in. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm on your side. This is what I believe. But, but anyway, I'll let you take it from there. I think that's really interesting how, how that th- this whole issue is manifesting <laughs> itself. But. Religion has always held the most currency with the masses. It's funny because we're talking about Iran and we're talking about what happened in 1979, but even in 1906, in that revolution, it was a broad revolution. It had, you know, the business interests and, and the Western educated liberals and secularists and, and the religious groups. But it was really the clerics who had the ability to, to bring the masses to the streets, to be able yeah. to talk about constitutionalism in religious terms, in ways that they understand. And the same thing happened, of course, in 1979. You know, again, broad coalition of Iranians came to the streets and brought the Shah down. But in the end, only one group really knew how to speak to the masses because they had the language of religion. That's not unique to Iran. That's how everywhere in the world works, uh, certainly here in the United States. I mean, you know, we we recognize that religion can become a shorthand, especially in politics, in such a way that it can mobilize people to your cause for good or for bad. I mean, you think about, you know, the Bush years. I, I mean, remember, the war on terror was introduced to us not as a very complex security police operation in multiple countries, you know, with allies in tow. It was a battle between good and evil. Any idiot can understand those terms. Which side are you on? There's good and there's evil. Which which one do you choose? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a child's choice. And you saw it with President Obama, who, you know, had to learn how to speak the language of religion, uh, even though it, sometimes it, it seemed a little bit uncomfortable for him in order to sort of communicate with the masses. And then, of course, as you say, with President Trump, probably the most irreligious person to have ever held the office of president, a man who could not name a single Bible verse, literally, was asked, what's your favorite Bible verse? And his answer was, I like all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but who course, knew? It was, it was perfect. I mean, uh, quite frankly, I like them all. Yeah, I like them all. You know, but who knew that in the end, yeah. he could communicate to, you know, people who, who followed him in shorthand by just simply holding yeah. that Bible up in the air in the middle of his most fascistic, you know, moment as, as president. And again, it comes back to what I was saying before. Of course, this is why people hate religion. Well, of course, that's why they hate it. You know, they see the language of religion being used to mobilize the masses for causes that are destructive to human beings, to human dignity. And I get it, but they also use the exact same language to mobilize the masses to stop wars, to create civil rights, to stop slavery. You know, all of those movements for good were religious movements, <laughs> were movements that 
either explicitly were religious or at the very least used the language of religion to mobilize mm. the masses. And I think, again, that's that's what it means to study religion, right? Yeah. People think that, you know, when you study religion, that you're just like, you're like reading the Bible all day long. Sometimes when I'm like, a, you know, on a plane and people are like, what do you do? And I say, I'm a, I'm a scholar of religions and they like start confessing sins to me. I'm like, well, no, no, I think you are misunderstanding <laughs> what I do for a living. Um, we can update the Wikipedia entry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's what it is. You know, when you say you study religion for a living, what you're truly studying is the way that people think, the way that they identify themselves, the way that they understand their place in the world. That's what it really means to study religion. Yeah, I, I feel in this conversation, we just keep circling back in in a great way to this idea that religion is very much part of our lives, you know, and, and I let off with this, you know, like a lot of people think, well, maybe, maybe it isn't so important and numbers are going down. There's pockets here and there. And you've spoken to this point already, like mm -hmm. it, it's shifting, it's changing, but it's not disappearing. The influence is there. It's all around us. You just got to kind of open your eyes to see it, you know, what we, you know, how we're being influenced by, by this person or that person. So yeah, it, it's utterly, utterly compelling. Also fascinating uh, and really enjoying this talk so far. And I do have one last question in this segment really quickly in terms of all of this, in terms of all that you've been doing, you know, how has this world been treating you in terms of the study of <laughs> world religions and in, in terms of how your career has developed and you know, where, where, where you've ended up essentially, you know, how's it been yeah. treating you there, Reza? Well, look, I'm going to be honest with you and say that like, you know, you sort of caught me at a, at a strange time, you know, I, I spent a, a lot of my career, as I was saying before, trying to translate each other's, you know, beliefs to one another, trying to remind people that, you know, it's not that different. It's actually you believe something very similar to this. Mm. It may seem foreign and exotic and weird and frightening even to you. But once you understand what's being said, once you understand what's being communicated, then it's very familiar and yeah. and indeed you know comfortable but i have to be honest and say that you know the last few years have been really really difficult it's been very hard to see not just the united states but you know large parts of the world you know the so called quote unquote developed world uh retreating retreating from freedom and democracy and universal rights retreating willingly into autocracy and fascism and dictatorships in which religion is overtly being used as a weapon to dehumanize, right? And doing so with the explicit support of religious leaders, you know, religious institutions. It's hard. It's yeah, hard to it's keep yeah. preaching, you know, kindness and understanding and we're you know we're all the same when you're looking at this world you're and you're thinking well maybe it. we're not <laughs> you know mm. um so it's 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 been a rough few years i'm not gonna yeah. lie chris it's been a rough no. few years but that said i do think that the desire the thirst for meaning has only grown over yeah. the last few years and the more that people retreat from kind of traditional religious answers and understandings and and you know institutions the more they need someone to be able to kind of help them understand how to make sense of you know the things that they believe because whatever else faith is it's it's fundamentally an emotion 
you know, yeah. it's a thing that you feel. And sometimes, you know, emotions are very, very hard to put into words, very hard to, to kind of communicate. And I still feel very much like my primary job is to give people the language to, to communicate those emotions, mm. especially at a time like this. Mm. Well said, well said. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point that you raised there. I mean, the rise of these autocratic governments and whatnot and, and religion being a big part of that to, to kind of shift and sway towards these things. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where I find like, you would know this better than I would certainly, but it's just like this pendulum, it seems to like swing back and forth, back and forth. We recognize, okay, this form of government, this form we were, we were just had, you know, th- this isn't the right way anymore. Okay. We got to shift back this way. And it's just this back and forth. And I suppose, yeah. at least for me, when I deeply think about this, what kind of gives me hope to maybe eventually, I don't know, maybe break this pattern to a degree is what you were just speaking about, that maybe this this new form of religion that that's, you know, develops just byproduct of society, by culture, by everything that's shifting and changing. And you brought up uh, earlier in the conversation of people borrowing elements of this religion, borrowing an element of this religion, like up until this point, like that hasn't really been a thing. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. like I'm not the expert here, but my impression is that you're either this or you're this or you're this. And this sort of development, what you were you know, alluding to of, well, taking you know, you know, the best parts, I suppose, probably that's yeah. what they're doing. They're yeah. cherry picking the best parts. Well, I want to believe in this. Eh, not so much here. I don't want to believe this part here, right. but I'll take this one. And oh, this is kind of nice here. Let me just add that to the basket. You know, like that is, I'm assuming that's, that's a newer development, like within. Yeah. In this- fact, we have a term for it. We call it the religious marketplace. And it is Perfect. it is distinctly American, to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah. Um, in most places in the world, you die in the religion that you were born in. Yeah. Not in America. You know, we have the highest rates of what's called religious switching mm-hmm. anywhere in the world, which is mm-hmm. you it's just it's just a matter of it doesn't necessarily mean that you were a Christian and now you're a Buddhist. It just means that you die not in the religious tradition that you were born in. And so you could go from, you know, Christianity to atheism or atheism to Judaism or whatever Mm -hmm. the case may be. Yeah. That's a very uniquely American phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It has a lot to do with, I think who we are as, as a nation and the kind of uh, rabid individualism that is at the heart of this country. It has a lot to do with the, the Protestant foundations upon which this nation was built. You know, I'm not one of these, I'm not like Lauren Boebert. I'm not sitting here saying like, we were founded as a Christian nation, false, but we were founded by a bunch of Protestants (laughs) and Protestantism has, you know, kind of wedded within it that, that sense of radical individualism. And, um, you know, you don't need the Pope to tell you what Christianity means. You can just figure out yourself. Well, Mm. If that's true, then that means everybody gets their own version of Christianity. And that's kind of how we started as a country. And so we are an incredibly religiously diverse country, probably the most religiously diverse country in the world. People, you know, sometimes say, well, India is probably a little bit more diverse because it has far more different traditions. But I think all of that has created a, a unique set of challenges. Um, mm. And we're we're experiencing that, honestly. We the very, very beginning of this conversation, we were saying that, you know, Christianity is losing membership and it's losing it rapidly. And in some ways that's just demographics. In some ways it's just Christianity's own fault for marrying itself, you know, so 
fully to, you know, a particular political party in the United States. So when people start feeling bad about that political party, guess who else they start feeling bad about, you know? But it also has a lot to do with the, the, the nature of our diversity, you know, and the religious marketplace. People in America feel free to just kind of change religions the way that they would change a, a jacket, you know, yeah. or change outfits. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, or you know, I pick a little bit of Buddhism here. I like a little bit of Christianity, mm-hmm. a little little sprinkling of Judaism, and I've got my own religion. And go. all of that is great. All of that is fine as long as you are feeling, you know, a sense of of meaning and 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 you have a deep connection, you know, to to your faith. But I do think that it is important to recognize that there are very few places in the world where you see this outside yeah. of the United States. Yeah, yeah, this is a podcast unto itself, I suppose, exploring yeah. that and how that's developing, but you could go on and on. Uh, I do, you know, I'm one conscious of your time. And I just want to close out with this one last question here and returning to your book again, which is coming out in October. And there's this quote in there that it was just, it was really powerful and it was, it was really moving. You know, I want to read that off for listeners and for you and just to quickly get your comments. So just let me read it off. And this was in relation to the effect that Baskerville story has had on you, You've spoken to this, but here's something from the book. It serves as a reminder that we must not be slaves to the bigotry or creeds or the prejudice of nationality, that our obligations to one another go beyond the particular religion we subscribe to or the citizenship we've been assigned, that the suffering of any person anywhere is the responsibility of all peoples everywhere. And again, we've spoken to this, quite frankly, at least in my opinion, we're we're failing at right now. And uh, it just struck me when I read that. And uh, maybe some just final thoughts there. Like, are are you optimistic that we're ever going to get this right, Reza? Big (laughs) big existential, you know, metaphysical milkshake type (laughs) question. Are we going to sort this out? You know? Here's what I would say. Near the end of Baskerville's life, not long after he had quit his teaching post and his mission and willingly abandoned his American citizenship. The consul general, the American consul general, came to him while he was in the battlefield and said, this is not your fight. You're American. These people are Persian. This is not about you. This is not your fight. You need to go home. And Baskerville said something that has over 116 years. It's one of the few things that, that was remembered about you know Baskerville. Uh, He very famously said, the only difference between me and these people is the place of my birth. And that is, then that is not a big difference. Yeah. And it's funny because now we're at a place right now where people are reverting back to their tribal identities, right? Exactly. Um, Coming more nationalistic, less globally connected. And it's all about us and them. You know, and this coming from a time in which, you know, I mean, I remember the 90s and the and the early 2000s where everyone was like, globalism is the wave of the future. National borders and boundaries don't matter anymore. Gonna disappear. Yes, we're all one, you know, and uh, and I'm not saying that, you know, we were naive to think that way. I think in many ways what we're experiencing right now is truly a backlash and a temporary backlash to some of those great sort of globalization, you know, principles and ideals um, that we all still remember. But insofar as do I have any sense of optimism, I do. And the reason my optimism comes from the fact that as much as we want to pretend otherwise, the true existential threats 
that we face as a society are not nationalistic or racial or ethnic or religious, right? The true existential threats that we face are global and they can only be addressed if we do, as I say, strip ourselves of those silly identities, those manufactured identities, right? These sort of false things that we created to divide ourselves into different groups and begin to tackle them, you know, as one human race. So this is kind of one of those weird optimism things because it's like optimism embedded within pessimism, (laughs) which is that eventually the planet is going to have enough going to say, well, that's enough. That's all I can handle anymore. And at that point, it doesn't matter whether you're a Texan, you know, or whatever. Like, it doesn't matter which side of the border between Mexico and America you live on, right? The planet is on fire and we all need to come together in order to do something about it. So, you know, it sucks to have to say it takes a, a crisis, an emergency, but that is kind of how we've always worked as a right. human race, you know? That's right. That's right. No, that's well said. A really intriguing sort of take on it as well, I might add. Well, Rose, I mean, it's been an absolutely riveting talk. I've, I've enjoyed this from start to finish. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, I wholly, wholly thank you for all your time and effort in coming out on the show today. And really quickly, I'm just going to slide this in here. You know, I've learned you know, over the course of doing this podcast is uh yeah you save these last comments right to the end here especially when you're interviewing someone that you respect and uh you know i must say your work all that you've done all you've accomplished yeah definitely i mean uh yeah a lot of respect to you in that sense so in honor of serving the interview i've kind of held up this sort of geekdom in this comment here or commentary <laughs> here about everything but uh, one, one last thing i'll just slide in there is that it's funny i uh you know again admire a lot of what you do and I'll be uh, I'll be listening to your podcast, you know, you and Rain with the Metaphysical Milkshake. And I'm, I'm based in Western Japan, not even in Tokyo, Osaka. Like I've been, I lived in those places, but now I'm in the countryside, like pure Japanese countryside, 30,000 wow. people. You know, <laughs> I, I've got like old Japanese farmers walking around all the time. So I'm walking my dog and on a fairly regular basis, I might add that I'll be listening to your pod. And I, I love how you guys are presenting things, you know, some fairly deep and heady stuff. <laughs> you know, in an entertaining manner. And I'll have these little moments where it just hits me, a comment here or there, I'll just sort of like burst out in a, you know, moment of laughter. And I get these strange <laughs> looks from these Japanese, elderly Japanese people. Like I've got Bluetooth, you know, headphones and nobody knows. Like I've got, you know, not wearing these big headphones. They don't know. They just see this, this white foreign guy walking through these rice <laughs> paddies or along them, <laughs> just like <laughs> laughing to himself. I mean, yeah, I, I have no idea what they must think. But anyway, I thank you for all that, for those zany moments that uh, it creates in my life as well. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much, yeah. Chris. All righty. Well, for those interested in learning more about Reza and his work, you can find him at rezaaslan.com. Further, you can look him up on all the socials, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. And also, don't forget, of course, I mean, he's got this new book coming out in American Modern Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville will be out in October. Go, go get that advanced copy. It'll be well worth your time. Also, for reference, all this stuff will be included in the show notes. And hey, I mean, if you like today's show, share, you know, in the spirit of today's talk, I think, you know, learning a little bit more about one another, it lessens that divide, you know, it lessens that tribalism, if you will. So yeah, go ahead, share, put it out there. And of course, rate, review and subscribe. That stuff helps way more than you can even imagine. 
and then head on over to YouTube. This is the third thing, head on over to YouTube. Within the last year, I did launch a channel over there which does host the video conversations. The neat thing is that you can see some imagery associated with the talk, which you can kind of take it in, in a different manner. So yeah, head on over there and uh, check that out. And then finally, don't forget to tune into the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions, people from around the world. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living. Thank you.